But if you are taking notes tonight, God doesn't love you more if you take notes, but I do. The sermon title is The Chorus of Beautiful. And if you have your Bible, you can turn to Psalm 19. But you know what? I preach one-timers and a little less frequently these days because of just hashtag life and the season of our life is in. I, I, I ask God, like, it's often a one-week sermon where there's no ties to anything else. What do, you, what do you want me to preach on? Because there's good sermons and then there's great sermons. Great sermons are the ones that the person has lived through, right, incarnationally experienced. And, and, and there's a depth to the sermon when that's happened. And, and I was thinking about my year so far, I've, I haven't read a ton. <laughs> I, I read the Bible in the morning with my coffee and so on and so forth. But in the evenings, rather than grabbing a book to read, when I finally have some me time, I've been grabbing my brush, going to the garage where this easel is, and painting. I wanted to take this escape, this long-time escape of painting, make it a little more intentional, a focused habit, and just see where it goes. So my, my reading this year, haven't read much, let me confess. But I did read this one book I want to give a shout out. It's called Rembrandt is in the Wind. It's, it's full of art history. It inspired a lot of tonight, and uh, it informed a lot of tonight. So I wanted to give it a brief shout out. It's a great book. Rembrandt is in the Wind by Russ Ramsey. And you know, as I was reading that book, there's two chapters on Vincent Van Gogh, and I was reminded of how prolific he was as a painter. In the last year of his life, this man was on a pace of an average of one painting per day. On a good week, I might put out one painting. It's like a little one, right? Granted, I have a wife and kids, things that he did not have. <laughs> Big difference. But he was cranking out one painting per day. He was prolific, and yet for all his painting, right, the, 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 not so fun fact about Vincent Van Gogh is he only sold one painting in his lifetime. I've sold more paintings this year than he did in his entire lifetime. But he didn't just struggle with making it as an artist. In, on a deeper level, he struggled throughout his life with his mental health. How many know in the 19th century, it wasn't a, a place that knew how to wrestle with mental health issues? So he dealt with the public rejection, the shame, the humiliation, it weighed heavily on him until one day he had an argument where his flatmate left him, another painter, and he cut off his ear, gave it to a female friend, which left him in the hospital, which led to him spending a year in an asylum. And you might think, well, that's the end of Vincent Van Gogh, that's the end of all his painting, but no, he continued to paint. An average of three paintings per week, uh, or 140 total during his stay. There are por portraits of caregivers. He painted the landscape. He painted self-portraits with the bandage over his ear, pointing to his own humiliation, his own shame. But you know also, like his magnum opus, Starry Night, one of the most recognizable paintings in Western culture was painted on the grounds of that asylum. That painting went from an asylum <laughs> to museums around the world, noted, celebrated, and those paintings are now worth millions, right? These paintings that were painted by a man who struggled in poverty, out of the spotlight of success, even in an asylum. And he wore his shame on his sleeve and even in his paintings, his own self-portraits. Now, he is far from the only creative or artist, singer, poet, whatever, who in their lifetime wasn't celebrated, but then was celebrated after their passing. You think of like Emily Dickinson, the poet, Johann Sebastian Bach, the composer, 
They experience much of the same. See, culture has this pattern. We initially reject so many creatives and artists for not being more useful, right? Do something that's useful for society, (laughs) only to turn to them later when we find a world without beauty to be lacking. And I share that because I want to talk about how we don't just do that with specific artists, but we do that with beauty itself. We so often treat beauty as unessential. It's like a side hobby to a purposeful pursuit of God or even a useless pursuit. So we devalue it altogether. That's until we find ourselves lamenting a world without it. Going further, we'll see tonight that beauty is at the bedrock of who God is. And yet we actively engage with it all too infrequently. And we'll see this affects our faith. Like I've been going to weekly services and camps and conferences since I was 21. And I can't think of many, if any, sermons that just simply focused on beauty. It's like it's been exiled from the conversations in the church when it's central to who God is. God is inherently beautiful. That's exactly why I want to dive into it tonight, starting here in Psalm 19. If you turn there, I didn't, shame on me, but I got it marked. I just want to read Psalm 19 in its entirety briefly. It says, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. They speak without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard. Yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. God has made a home in the heavens for the sun. It bursts forth like a radiant bridegroom after his wedding. It rejoices like a great athlete eager to run the race. The sun rises at one end of the heavens and follows its course to the other end. Nothing can hide from its heat. The instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The commands of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are clear, giving insight for living. Reverence for the Lord is pure, lasting forever. The laws of the Lord are true. Each one is fair. They are more desirable than gold, even the finest gold. They are sweeter than honey, even honey dripping from the comb. They are a warning to your servant, a great reward to those who obey them. How can I know all the sins lurking in my heart? Cleanse me from these hidden faults. Keep your servant from deliberate sins. Don't let them control me. Then I will be free of guilt and innocent of great sin. May the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. God, I pray that right now over this sermon. May the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be pleasing to you. God, I pray that as it says right here, that your instructions will revive our souls. Your decrees would make us wise. Your commandments would bring us joy and insight for living. Holy Spirit, use your word to speak to us tonight in a way that's going to change and transform us the way we see you and the way we see ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. See, in the the very first verse of Psalm 19, it speaks of the heavens and then it speaks of the sky, which can more directly be translated the dome of the sky or the firmament firmament, which reflects the beliefs of that time about what the sky was like. And those are clear references to creation and its order where God first created the heavens and the earth, and then the second day he created the firmament or atmosphere to separate the waters above from the waters below. And at the end of the second day, what does he say, which he says at the end of every day, God said it was good. Day after day, this chorus of God declaring that the things he was creating were good. But unlike our English translations, which give the translation good, in the first translations of the Hebrew Bible into the Greek, those scholars, those translators in their wisdom, they translated the word 
beautiful. Because the Hebrew word has both meanings, good and beautiful. But in the, in the early Bible, when it first was translated to the Greek, it said God said it was beautiful over and over again. And to me, that's a game changer because the tone pivots. Because especially in our society, after the Industrial Revolution, in our Western culture, we think of good, we think of effective. We think of productive, uh, serviceable. It's got a utilitarian tone. It's effective, it's good. Like, it's all good. God's saying it's running, we're good. But God wasn't utilitarian in his creating. Like, I've stood at sunsets with Raj and Steph. Raj would be throwing rocks in the water, like, just doing his thing. And I'll just be standing there. you just patient because he does his thing. We'll talk about that later. He, he knows how to just be occupied with beauty and nature. And I'll just be standing there thinking, like, God didn't have to do all this. Like, he could have just created us to, to have a relationship with him in some grayscale, like black and white, one color, one flavor, one sound. But no, he created so much beauty. And if I'm honest, like, I borderline lament the fact that in my lifetime, I'm not going to have the time, the money, or energy to see all the beauty that God created, see all the wonders of this world. But, you know, even if I did saw every inch of the land on earth, I still would have seen like 0.00, who knows, like fraction of 1% of the beauty of God's creation. There are universes, planets, and nebulas. There are things we will never even see in this life that are beautiful. There's, there's regions of the ocean and, and, and creatures in the ocean we've never laid eyes on. And you begin to realize that, again, creation wasn't just good in a utilitarian sense. It wasn't, it's not even there for us to use. Right? God doesn't need it. It's not for him to use either. Right, so much of creation simply exists to be beautiful and reflect the beauty of God. To somebody like Darwin with his theories of nature, beauty is unnecessary. It's kind of dangerous to waste time to create, to give your life to create something beautiful for beauty's sake because that doesn't fit into this perspective of survival of the fittest. But when you see God declare beautiful over each day of creation, we realize beauty is central to creation and more significantly, it's central to God. God is inherently beautiful. God first reveals himself in scripture as a creative, creating, like an artist, this repeated chorus of beautiful, and then he places mankind in it. Matter of fact, Hebrew scholars and Jewish tradition contends that God sang creation into being. This wasn't just an industrial endeavor by God. No, it was like a, a work of art. It was creative, it was poetic. And I quote the, the author Makoto Fujimura. Thank you, Jamal. I probably just butchered his name, but you said, yeah, anyways. But uh, in my artist statement, I quote him in the artist statement that I, I used to, for a submission into this magazine. And because it, it, it's a, a portrait competition, and I was painting people. And I quoted him because he writes and points out something powerful, that the word rada or dominion that God commands for us to have over nature, it's not like this this power and control we so often think of to have dominion over nature, but it speaks to our stewardship and how we're supposed to steward it. And Fujimura says one aspect of our stewardship is to become poets of creation, to sing alongside the creator over creation. When I paint and paint portraits of people that God has created in his image, I like to think I'm, I'm like singing alongside the creator over these people. That's a beautiful statement, and it's poetic in and of itself, but maybe you say, okay, what does that mean for me? <laughs> Monday through Friday, practically, what does this mean, this quote? And I want to look at that tonight, 
But we can start by going beyond Genesis and into the pages of the Old Testament. Because if you turn a few pages to the right, to the next book, in Exodus, we see that the very first time the Holy Spirit fills somebody, it's an artist, a craftsman, Bezalel, and his right-hand man to create beautiful things for this beautiful temple that was supposed to reflect this beautiful God. And then later in the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah prophesies in Isaiah 53, verse 2, how we will behold Jesus, right, the Son of God in humanity. And it says in, in Isaiah 53, verse 2, there was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to draw us to him. It's remarkable to me that the, the source of all beauty took on flesh and we saw no beauty. Now, practically speaking, clearly it speaks to Jesus' appearance. You start digging into the language and, and it's like, no, visually, there was nothing striking about Jesus. But less clearly, I begin to ask these questions. Does it also speak to, to our eyes and our ability to see beauty? I think of 10 chapters previous in Isaiah, where in Isaiah 43, he talks of the Israelites who had eyes but couldn't see and ears that couldn't hear. It, it, it echoes what Jesus says in the Gospels when he's teaching in parables and he's teaching. He says, these people have eyes but cannot see and ears that cannot hear. And he quotes Jeremiah, who says the exact same thing. But how do they become this way in Isaiah and Jeremiah? They turn from the God of all beauty and turn to idols, turn to other avenues of worship, but they turn from God. They forsook him, turn their backs on him. And they turn from beauty in Isaiah 53 had they lost their ability to recognize it. What I would ask tonight is when we turn from and lose sight of the source of all beauty, can we devalue beauty to the extent we lose our appetite for it? even lose our ability to recognize it in its purest forms. Because I've heard, the, I've heard it said that kids don't know what they like as much as they like what they know. Right, what you, with the music you listen to with your kid, it's gonna determine the music they like. If they've never heard a genre of music, it's not gonna be their favorite. Same with food. Like you don't introduce sugar to your kids, they aren't gonna crave it. But, but as soon as you do this or that, right, whatever cuisine you're feeding them, they like what they know more than they know what they like. And I share that because in the same way when we stop feeding on beauty or adopt a life that deprioritizes it or displaces it, do we over time lose our appetite for it, lose our ability to even recognize it? Going further and more significantly, when we neglect beauty, do we hinder our relationship with the God who is beauty? Isaiah 53 would certainly seem to at least hint at that possibility. But with this reminder of beauty's value in mind, let's engage with the topic and the scripture tonight in Psalm 19. It's verses one through six. David begins by highlighting the beauty of creation. And then we see in verses seven through 11, he discusses God's truth, right? His perfect instruction, his trustworthy decrees, his clear commands. And in the same breath, in those same verses, he points to God's goodness, that it's more desirable than gold, sweeter than honey. It's a great reward. And I break it down like this with these three things because in philosophy, these are what are known as the three transcendentals. Now track with me. This is like an entire college course in two seconds. But truth relates to the mind, goodness to the will, and beauty to the heart, feelings, or imagination. Again, philosophy professors would probably laugh at that synopsis, but they're called the three transcendentals because everything else in every other category participates with them in some degree. They're universal realities that extend beyond our everyday experience and are considered non-physical, conceptual, and yes, even spiritual. We see in scripture that they're inherent in the nature of God. 
Peter Kreeft, who wrote on the three transcendentals, said that truth, goodness, and beauty are the three things we all need and need absolutely and know we need. These are the only three things that we never get bored with and never will for all eternity because they are the attributes of God and therefore all of God's creation. Three transcendental or absolutely universal properties of all reality. Now of the three, truth and goodness, we can measure them, they're empirical, even useful. But beauty, again, in the utilitarian spirit of our Western culture, post-industrial revolution, we struggle to appreciate the value of beauty that isn't also somehow useful. So I find it fitting when I was studying Psalm 19 that it said for a long time there was considerable discussion about whether the first half on beauty and the second half are even the same composition because of the seemingly disconnected pivot at verse 7 from beauty to God's truth and goodness. And it's fitting as we've often separated beauty from goodness and truth, the two useful values we hold dear, just as many have wanted to separate Psalm 19. Do we pursue God and his truth? Absolutely. We, we dive into his word. Do we pursue him in his goodness? Absolutely. We have faith in his goodness. He's a good father. Do we pursue him in his beauty? Eh, less so. And as we've seen, it can impact our relationship with him. But just as the Bible does, David starts Psalm 19 with this chorus of beauty. This man after God's own heart, it seems like he's taken up God's heart for beauty. It's as if God, or David, has become that poet of creation, singing alongside the creator over creation as he writes this psalm. But this discussion on beauty, again, up to this point, the practical question arises, okay, how? <laughs> how do I participate in beauty? How do I contribute beauty? Like, I'm not an artist. I'm not painting. I'm not a poet. I'm not writing. And I don't know if you noticed, I'm not going to be on the cover of, like, Men's or Women's Health magazine anytime soon. How do I contribute to beauty in the world? How do I uh, uh, take part in it? But before we get to how, we should dig into the Bible and see what is beauty, according to the Bible, and why do we need it so badly? But let's start with the what is biblical beauty. In Isaiah 33, verse 17, it speaks to the Lord in his beauty, and the Hebrew word here speaks to excellence. When something is excellent, it can be beautiful. There's something alluring about excellence. Like, we know it when we hear it. We know it when we see it. And this leads to the second facet of beauty in Scripture, Psalm 52, excuse me, 50, verse 2 says, From Zion, perfect in beauty, God shines forth. And this speaks to attractiveness. And this one's simple, right? My wife is beautiful, therefore I'm attracted to her. <laughs> What's beautiful attracts. And then Psalm 27, verse 4 says in one translation, I love, it says in this translation that David wanted to behold the fair beauty of the Lord. And the word here speaks to pleasurable perception. Perceptions that's not about just an increase in awareness, but even an increase in pleasure. That's the what of beauty. And I would argue that simultaneously, it's the why of beauty. It's why we need it. Because life is hard. <laughs> Hate to bring it, <laughs> bring it down a notch tonight. Life is hard. There's trouble. There's suffering. There's pain. Why does David in Psalm 27 verse 4 say he wants to go gaze upon the fair beauty of the Lord? Oh, because his life was hard. His life had trouble. His life was suffering, and there was pain. That's literally what he laments for the rest of the chapter 27. And like David, our human story is this conflict or tension between tragedy and beauty. And yeah, we'll all have our own story, but we will all have a common experience balancing joy 
and pain, tragedy and beauty. And for all beauty's pull and allure, tragedy and pain also has its own. Think about our culture, for instance. Anger and fear are the fuel our culture runs on. Why? Because anger spreads most virally. When you're upset, you can't turn the news off. When you're upset, you keep scrolling. So what happens? <laughs> My life is already painful, but then the culture pulls me toward more pain, more outrage, more tragedy, more fear. So then I'm overstimulated, overdistracted, overreactive. But if I'll pause and look and listen, beauty also beckons. And it asks me to trade distraction for delight and problems and pain for this pleasurable perception. T. Van Gogh once said that art is to console those who are broken by life. I think about this often. I wonder if he was speaking to his own brokenness or the brokenness of people that he wanted to minister to with his art. But you could say the same with the wider world of beauty, that, that beauty is to console those who are broken by life. Beauty is to counterbalance all the pain and tragedy in this world. And again, we often treat beauty as like it's superfluous, a side hobby for this passionate pursuit of God, or even a useless distraction. So we neglect it until we find ourselves broken, punched in the gut by life, <laughs> mourning a loss, and all of a sudden, it's vital. We find ourselves turning to those songs that, that speak to us, those poems, those books, those movies, those images. We need it. It's like David's recipe in Psalm 27. He was struggling, and what does he ask? I want to see God in his beauty. There's something in our soul that's satiated by our creator and his creation, by God's beauty. I think of, we were just there Thursday with the Godwins, the, the sunsets over Fort Monroe. We go there all the time. Dolphins are swimming past. Ospreys are diving. Rainbows are coming over the horizon. Creation just shows off. Creation wears a million beautiful faces, and, and at Fort Monroe, at sunset, this is one of our places to go to just soak in it. Leave our phones back on the rocks and just be immersed in all the beauty. After a hard week, hard month, punch in the gut, whatever, that's where Steph, Raj, and I like to just go instinctively. Nobody has to tell us that uh, we, nature is good for the soul and the beauty is good for our soul. No, we just, we're wired for it. Being immersed in the beauty that's beheld by the mind and enjoyed by the soul, this pleasurable perception. And where life's pain and tragedy pulls us toward this economy of fear and anger, beauty summons us. I love Psalm 46 in the message version. In the message version, Eugene Peterson translates it and says, Attention all, see the marvels of God. He plants flowers and trees all over the earth. So step out of traffic. Take a long, loving look at me, your high God, above politics, above everything. Beauty summons us. It ushers us out of our fear-filled corners and back into the beauty of God. God sits above this economy of fear and anger and politics, and he invites us to fix our gaze. And that verse pivots us nicely to the how of beauty. We'll park it here for the rest of the night. How do we engage with it and in it? Because that same verse in Psalm 46, verse 10, in the version we're probably more familiar with, it reads, be still and know that I'm God. Be still, and as that previous version noted, take a long, loving look. Behold. Hundreds of times in the Bible, we are commanded to behold. To behold our creator and to behold his creation. God even does it in Genesis, right? He creates and then he pauses to behold its beauty and declare it is beautiful. If he needs to do that, 
how much more should we? Or think, I think of this quote by Albert Einstein all the time. He says, he who can no longer pause to wonder and stand wrapped in awe is as good as dead. His eyes are closed. Sounds like those Old Testament prophets, like they have eyes to see, but they don't see. If this man, in his immense understanding, right, had to stand again and again in awe before creation and God's design, how much more should I? But you see, we are discipled as a culture to not gaze or take long looks as it's a waste of time, right? We're trained to quickly categorize and move on. Keep scrolling, keep it moving. We're trained to make quick interpretations, and we live with this daily rush towards industrious efficiency and forsake any time and call to place ourselves and be still before beauty. We need to slow down, as Psalm 46 says, and behold. Behold means to see something awe-inspiring and impressive. Last month, Steph and I went on a trip up to D.C. and we were in the National Gallery of Art. I beheld a lot of beautiful paintings. I stood in front of some of Van Gogh's paintings for some time just, just looking at it. Right Again, because excellence, it draws us in. And a good artist knows how to use all these different techniques and brush strokes to draw you in. And then use other techniques like cheat codes with, with uh, uh, hard lines versus soft edges and color schemes and all these different ways to, to guide our eye across the painting. Draw your eye here first with the harsh contrast and then you start walking your way through the painting. It's how artists can tell a story in one composition because they're masters of their craft. Good art does this. It makes us slow down and behold. In fact, science has shown that art increases our mindfulness. People spending time on art, whether it's making it or gazing on it, are spending time being mindful. Good art has a way of training our senses to pay attention to the beauty in the world around us. Art has taught me personally to behold. You know, another teacher in my life that's taught me to behold is my son, Raj. I can remember the day we adopted Raj from India. This is your first time here many years ago, six, seven years ago now. I remember the day after we adopted him, we're in the restaurant at the hotel we were staying at, mine's blown that we had just adopted this kid, and we're holding him in the restaurant, and I just remember he looked over my shoulder, and Raj gets these little dimples over his eyebrows when he's, like, concerned or, like, fixes his gaze and he's thinking. And I remember him looking over my shoulder like he saw a ghost, and I look over, and he was looking at this flat-screen TV. And I'm thinking, this is probably the first time this kid has ever seen a TV, at least a TV like that, and he was just in awe. But it goes beyond the simple awe and wonder of a child. Raj is on the spectrum. He experiences what is called autistic awe. And what some would call his hyperfixation, his ability to look and hold and fixate on something for a long time with this keen fascination. He'll be absorbed in like the bark of a tree for 10 minutes. Like it just, he wants to be soaked in it. It's his way of beholding that I do well to imitate. Raj, if you've met him, he certainly does not live a rushed life. And I pray he never changes. I pray I learn to walk in more moments of awe and beholding myself. And as I grow up, as Raj is growing up, I, I pray I grow up to be like the older woman in this picture. It's about to come up. This is from a, a red carpet thing for a movie. For, and they're all looking at Johnny Depp some years ago. But I, I've never forgotten this picture. Everybody in the crowd fumbling to get their phone and capture a picture of Johnny Depp. And that one lady just chilling, captivated, right, just looking, beholding. We live in a camera-ready culture. Globally, we take more than one trillion digital photos a year. 
We live with fidgety fingers, which leads to this fidgety focus. And we miss the beauty around us. We constantly want to capture the moment. And we miss being captivated. Much like society underwent the age of enlightenment where the chorus was, we can figure it out. We can know what's going on. There seemingly comes an age in our lives where we trade awe and wonder for critique and evaluation. We graduate from standing under things in awe to standing over them with a critical eye. We don't want to embrace mystery. We want mastery. But the world is bigger than your view of the world, and much of it remains a mystery. How much more God is bigger than your view of God, and so much of God is going to remain a mystery. Healthy maturity knows that there are times where we need to apply awe and wonder. But again, as we mature and grow, we navigate these seasons of life ping-ponging between beauty and suffering, joy and pain. And the pendulum can swing in seasons into pain until awe and wonder gets choked out by cynicism. I know I've been guilty in hard seasons. The cynicism sparked by bodies that betray those I love, disable them. But I remember, I remember there was a season where I was pastoring in Suffolk, and there were like three to four people at the same time who were wrestling with family members who had uh, dementia. So I picked up this book. It's written by a doctor. It says, Finding Grace in the Face of Dementia. It's a great book, very specific topic, but it's a great book. And in one of the opening chapters, he says, to understand dementia, we have to first understand how a healthy brain works, just how awe-inspiring and full of wonder that is in the first place. He writes, as we begin to think about the changes in our brains that occur over time, what might impress us is not that they can fail, but that they ever worked in the first place. It's a random sentence in the opening chapters of the book, but I can't tell you the number of times I've thought about that. As Steph and I look at like MRIs of her brain or Raj's brain and we get reports and we're talking to doctors about their brains and what's wrong and what needs to be done and I can drift towards cynicism in those moments, a hard heart. And I think that's understandable, but my goodness, there are times where I think like the brain is this mysterious, beautiful marvel that we don't even fully understand. And it's a marvel to begin that it even works, right? And it calls to mind another quote I think of often by G.K. Chesterton. He says, wonder at the permanent thing, not the exception. Be startled by the sun, not the eclipse, not the earthquake, but the earth. Hmm. See, mankind has long wondered at the beauty of creation, the sun, eclipse, earthquake, and earth. And that wonder has often uh, drifted into personification and worship of those bodies, those creations. In the context of Psalm or excuse me, 19 tonight, in the ancient Near East, the heavenly bodies, the sun, moon, and stars, each were divine beings. But Psalm 19, David notes that they are not gods as much as they are artistic, beautiful works of God's hands. See, we ache to be awed. This wonder leads us to worship because we're wired for worship. But that ache was made for God and his creation, and that worship was made for God. You see, creation and beauty summons us, but it can't save us. It summons, but it doesn't save so as is good practice in art museums, you don't just stop by gazing at the, the creation and the beautiful work. No, you read the plaque. Next to the frame, beauty in a museum is often a text that explains and gives more information, helps you understand more deeply what you're looking at, and over time, help you deeper understand art as a whole. And David didn't just stop at creation in Psalm 27. No, he, he wanted to go to God in his temple, God in his beauty. What does this mean for us tonight? 
It means to go from gazing to, on God's beauty, which allures us and is beautiful, to reading his word, his truth, his revelation that helps us walk in a greater understanding of the beauty that surrounds us and how to engage with it. And this is how we get somewhere tonight. Because again, we'll ask the question, how do I join the chorus of beautiful that's been sung since God sang it over creation? This is where we start. David says again and again in Psalm 19 that God's word, his truth is good. His commands are life-giving. Dare I say they are beautiful. And according to Jesus, what are all these commands when you boil them down? Love. Love God. Love your neighbor. Love God. Love people. Again, to come full circle to Isaiah 53, it's true, right? Jesus may not have had any beauty which appealed to anyone's eyes, but that again just speaks to our sight. The words he spoke, the things people heard come out of his mouth were beautiful. His love, his care, his attention for those that are, were in the margins is beautiful. His life, beautiful. When we love like Jesus, we join in this chorus of beautiful. See, we often talk about speech and behavior as ugly, like that was ugly what they did. But it's also the opposite is true. We just don't say it as much. That was beautiful what they did. That was beautiful the way they spoke to that person. Just like works of art, compassion, encouragement, sacrifice, and love is beautiful. In fact, I was studying and reading so much of this Swiss philosopher and theologian, Hans Urs von Balthasar, over and over this week. Like, I just got enraptured by his writing. He's a, a Swiss philosopher and theologian. He wrote extensively on the transcendentals with a, a, a huge focus on beauty. He wrote like a seven-volume work on just the beauty of God. And I love that he defines justice as beauty in action. Justice is beauty in action that asks to be performed in the world. Von Balthasar says that the beauty of Jesus was not merely an object to be looked at, but an action in and upon the world which requires a self-involving response of engaged action from ourselves. This is how we readily, practically, this week, join the chorus of beautiful that's been sung since creation. Not just creating objects to be looked at, although I love that too, <laughs> but action in and upon the world. Living like Jesus did beautifully. See, Jesus didn't leave behind works of art, but his life was a work of art and beauty. And then Jesus died showing what is the most moving and beautiful part of any story, movie, or book, sacrificial love. See, Jesus, many believe, commonly believe, died at age 33. And again, to come full circle, Van Gogh also died in his 30s at 38. But where Jesus achieved his purpose and was able to say with his dying breath, it is finished, Van Gogh took his own life prematurely. You know, the year after Van Gogh's death in 1890, Paris and Brussels held retrospectives of Van Gogh's works. And then that got picked up in Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Finland, and Germany over the course of the 1890s, making Van Gogh one of the most prominent and celebrated painters in all of Europe by the turn of the century. Fast forward even further, and he's among the most celebrated and valued artists of all time. How much of this would he have witnessed if he didn't take his life? It's what amplifies the tragedy of his suicide. He was closer than he would have imagined to the success that dodged him his whole life. Had he lived a few more years, he would have witnessed it. It's almost painful to think about. And yet, I think why so many people are drawn to Van Gogh and his works isn't just the art, but it's the struggle he wears on his sleeve, his wrestling with the tension between life's pain and life's beauty. It's a struggle we all can relate to. 
His life echoes so many themes from Ecclesiastes about toiling and not satiating one's soul. But I wish one truth from Ecclesiastes he would have held on to is Ecclesiastes 3.11, that God makes everything beautiful in his time. God has made everything beautiful in his time. Elsewhere in Isaiah 61, it says that God gives us a crown of beauty for ashes. We see in Genesis 1, God takes chaos and creates things that are beautiful. If your life feels like chaos, feels like a, a, a fistful of ashes, then guess what? God's not done. If it's not beautiful, God's not finished. So don't be finished. Whatever you're, you're considering quitting tonight, your marriage, your job, your life, God's not done. He's not done. I think of the prophet Jeremiah. He was led by God to the potter's house to just witness and how we're clay in God's hands. God is intimately hands-on. We're not mass-produced. We're not an assembly line. God intimately shapes our lives. We have to give God the gift of time to craft us and shape us the same way a, a, a pot is shaped on a wheel. So many rotations, our rotations around the sun, the, all this time. We want the Disney transformation where it happens in an instant. We spin around a couple times. No, we have to give God the gift of time. We have to give that same gift to those around us. Time to grow. Let me get a couple extra minutes tonight. But Ephesians 2.10 says that we are God's craftsmanship. God's poema, where we get the word poem. See, we aren't just called to become poets of creation, to sing alongside the creator over creation. We ourselves are the creator poet's craftsmanship, his poema. And here's the quick application. We don't skim poetry, right? You don't read poetry quickly. We don't rush to draw conclusions. We linger over it. We soak in it. So if people are God's poems, right? It's, this is the word we get poem from. Sorry, that's the, the connection here. If people are God's poems, we need to slow down, ask questions, sit there, reserve judgment, listen. As I was looking at this portrait this week, I was thinking, man, if we, the church, paint a portrait of Christ, how often does it look like this with no ear to hear, no ear to listen? We're good at, at speaking truth and sharing truth, but how often do we sit and listen, give people our ears? Jesus listened. He slowed down, shared tables, asked questions. The Bible doesn't say that Jesus just rubbed shoulders with sinners or, or, or crossed paths with sinners. It says he was a friend of sinners. We're so good at lobbing truth and keeping it moving, but Jesus knew these people's names, their kids' names, their jobs, their dreams, their fears. He was a friend of sinners. I wonder how many people like that Van Gogh had in his life. He once said, someone has a great fire in his soul and nobody ever comes to warm themselves at it and passersby see nothing but a little smoke. It reminds me of the C.S. Lewis quote that calls us to not overlook those around us because there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. <laughs> Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. What he's saying is there are no ordinary people. We're all God's poema. And like Van Gogh's many portraits, I'll close with this. We're called to paint a portrait with our lives, hopefully containing more everlasting splendor than immortal horrors, to borrow from C.S. Lewis. But in the end, it's not a self-portrait. With our lives, we're called to paint a picture of Christ. We're called to conform to his likeness and his image, as it says in Romans 8, and the small problem here is like, we don't know what Jesus looked like, but that's not what it's talking about anyways. We know what Jesus' heart was like. And the idea is Jesus' heart 
becomes our heart, his desires, him, his impulses because our desires and our impulses. That's the portrait we're to paint and show the world. And every day, let me tell you, you can treat like another brushstroke. One day at a time, brushstroke at a time. And you know what I love about oil paints? Here's a little secret. You mess up a brushstroke, you can paint right on over it. You have a bad day, move on to the next one. You get another brushstroke tomorrow. And you, you might say tonight, like, I don't even like my life and the portrait I painted to this point. Here's another good thing about oil paints. You don't have to throw out the canvas, just paint over it. Matter of fact, this morning, Van Gogh Museum on Instagram was highlighting, a, they had just done x-rays of a Van Gogh painting where it was like he had painted these sheep. He decided, I don't like it. Painted right over it. You can paint right over it. God gives you new beginnings. And in this life where we navigate both pain and beauty, good days, bad days, I think again of this portrait that we can share our bandaged up self. We can share our failings because bandages, they're bridges to others. We all share this similar journey, wrestling with life's pain as we ache for beauty. We all have brokenness, and sharing it can be beautiful. I think of how Steph may no longer carry, like, the, the weight of ministry she carried five or ten years ago, but the impact she has due to her pain and her condition, the connection she has with people all over the nation <laughs> because of social media, being able to connect because of what she's been through. What if the church was a place where we could be honest in our pain? Honest about how we portray ourselves, like Van Gogh with his bandaged ear. Trusting that even in our failings, we're loved. Each of us reflecting the love of God for one another. The love of God that sees us as priceless, beloved sons and daughters, bandaged and all. Like the now priceless portrait of Van Gogh, honestly capturing his bandaged ear to his own shame. We are broken and bandaged, yet of incalculable worth to God. The poet propaganda once wrote that worth, value, and beauty is not determined by some innate quality, but by the length for which the owner would go to possess them. And broken and ugly things just like us are stamped excellent with ink tapped in wells of divine veins. In layman's terms, spoken plainly, worth and beauty are determined by the cost the buyer is willing to spend. And Jesus spent his very life. The beautiful life we're called to emulate, the portrait we're called to paint with our life, and like I was sharing earlier in that welcome home moment, we're going to fail. We're going to have days where we fail miserably. No matter how long we work on that portrait, it's never going to be perfect. But the beautiful truth of the good news is that through Jesus' sacrifice, God already sees his son in righteousness over us. Worship team, you don't worry about the song. I'm, I want to share this, and then I'll close in prayer. Dostoevsky's classic book, unfortunately titled The Idiot. Apologies to any kids in here. This book deals with much of what we've talked about tonight, this wrestling with beauty amidst suffering in story form. And at one point, the protagonist makes the claim that beauty will save the world. The reality is, beauty already did that some 2,000 years ago. The beautiful life of Jesus, perfectly lived, given to save us. But you know, our hope is that Jesus is coming again in his beauty, and that eternity will no longer be this dance between pain and beauty, joy and suffering. We will be new creations amidst the new creation. But the chorus of beautiful sung in Genesis 1 will continue through eternity, and we'll get to join in. We'll get to join in. With that fresh in our hearts and minds, let's pray as we close. You know, as I was prepping this afternoon, I was just thinking how easy it is to quit on our dreams, 
our, our grand visions for the future, those things God has put on our hearts. Just because life is hard. There's struggle. There's pain. The older we get, the more we experience it. And I, and I think of uh, Joel often is quoted in Acts where the old men will dream dreams. And I just had this sense tonight there were so many dreams that were dead or dormant, eclipsed by just life's troubles and cynicism. God's dreams of a, a life lived beautifully for us. We may not be there now, but I pray that we would have a faith in a God that makes everything beautiful in its time. I was reading through Isaiah 61, where it talks about he gives us a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and the garments of praise instead of a spirit of despair. We're not gonna close tonight in song, but I pray that we would be able to leave tonight with reminded of that crown of beauty instead of ashes, that garment of praise instead of despair, where so much pain has sowed seeds of despair to the point where we, we feel like quitting this or that. God, I pray that you would awaken those dreams again. We trust in your truth. We trust in your goodness. We celebrate your beauty. Jesus, we thank you that you lived a beautiful life, came and died so that nights like tonight and throughout our life, we can know God, be known by him, know our creator and be known by him. So I pray tonight, none of us would leave this place without stepping into that relationship. And God, that as we leave this place, fill with your word, fill with your spirit, we would be a, a portrait, a reflection of Christ, where Christians literally means little Christs. May we be that as we leave this place, living beautiful lives with beautiful marriages, beautiful parenting, beautiful conversations, beautiful work at the workplace, Lord God. Living life as you did, loving as you did, loving God, loving people. It's not easy, it's simple, but it's not easy. And God, I pray that we would treat each day like another brushstroke as we paint that portrait. There's gonna be good days, there's gonna be bad days, but may we rest assured that what happened on that cross never changes. Your love never changes. Whatever bandages we wear tonight, whatever wounds and scars we have, you see beautiful, beloved sons and daughters. Whatever sins we've committed, you see the righteousness of your son when we are in relationship with him, and we thank you for it. We praise you. Let it fuel us this week and every week. I pray you bless and keep us. Let your face shine upon us and be gracious toward us. Turn your countenance upon us and give us peace. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen.